Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Turf Show Times, a podcast about the Rams from the people who brought you TurfShowTimes.com. I'm Kenneth Arthur with me every week, and this week is no exception, J.B. Scott, and he is here to talk about the Rams with me. It feels like it's, you know, you wait so long, J.B., for the games to begin, and then the first game comes out, and obviously it's partly due to the fact that the Rams were the opening night game but it feels like now it's been forever since the Rams played. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot has transpired. All the other games have transpired. We saw the other teams in the NFC West, including the Seahawks, surprisingly win on Monday night to start 1-0 and and to get a little tiny early season advantage that nobody really expects them to hold as the 49ers and Cardinals dropped their games And neither team looked especially good in those losses. The Cardinals getting blown out by the Chiefs and the 49ers, you know, more questions about not only Trey Lance, but penalties and defense and uh, I guess the ability to play in poor weather conditions. But that is bound to change as the season goes on. I don't expect the Rams to finish in last, nor do I expect the 49ers to finish in last. But I guess, JB, starting off, now that we've seen the other teams, have you changed your expectations at all for the Cardinals, the 49ers, or the Seahawks? No, not at all. I think week one is prone to overreactions just because of such a small sample size, and we're so eager for the season to start. And once it's finally here, you know, we want to draw conclusions and we want to, you know, extrapolate that sample size. But really, this isn't the time to do that, of course. So, the Seattle Seahawks are in first place, pretty much a surprise to everyone on planet earth. And uh, you know, the Rams, it's not time to panic. It's a long season. You got 16 more games. You know, that's what a season used to, uh, how long a season used to be, I guess, before last year. So uh, plenty of time to make corrections and we'll see if they can get it done. One unfortunate thing, I guess, is that if Thursday night gave you a bad taste in your mouth, it's, it feels like it sat there for eternity and, you know, the Rams have a tough test in Atlanta Falcons here in week two, I think. Don't sleep on them. They seem like a pretty tough squad. Yeah, the Atlanta Falcons looked like they were going to beat the Saints, a team that I had a little bit of a – I came out with a, a little bit of a hot take. I thought Saints, maybe the number one seed in the NFC. I'm not a huge believer in Jameis Winston, but such a strong roster around him, and he's proven that he is capable of winning with a strong roster. And it's just a matter to me of uh, Dennis Allen – And conversely, they play the Falcons in week one, get a last second win, thanks to James Winston, Jarvis Landry, making plays there at the end, Will Lutz, the kicker, and the Falcons with Marcus Mariota, you know, just not having enough in the second half to hold off the Saints. And so that's really the only reason the Falcons are 0-1. Otherwise, this was a team not a lot of people expected, you know, to be in any sort of playoff race. If anything, you know, the Falcons seem to be racing towards a high draft pick to take a quarterback next year. But 
certainly uh, the Falcons showed a lot more, including, you know, Cordero Patterson and Marcus Mariota in the running game. How concerned are you about being able to stop the Falcons rushing attack? Yeah, and that's the MO of Arthur Smith, the head coach. It all starts at the top. And you know, he's a master designer in the running game. Comes from the Kyle Shanahan or the Mike Shanahan coaching tree. Maybe a awkward branch of it. You know, you don't you can't really tell exactly where he ties into it, but it all starts with the run game with Arthur Smith, and he's gonna give you a lot of unique looks and then hit you with play action and counters off of those unique looks. So you gotta be ready for everything. And and, you know, just because you've seen it before doesn't mean you should react the same way you did last time. So it's going to be interesting. They seem like they have some firepower on offense between Kyle Pitts, a pretty high draft pick at tight end wide receiver hybrid a year ago. Then you add another premium draft pick in Drake London from USC this year. So big targets. Uh, they're going to get after the Rams. So you got a number one, stop the running game. And then that'll let you kind of slow down those big pass catchers. They're going to try to get their, their, you know, fire started on off of play action and try to take shots down the field, of course. Yeah, when the uh, season was going last year, the college football season, that first five, six games, there was no more dominant receiver in the country than Drake London at USC. Just a big, uh, you know, uh, at the catch point, you know, not 50-50 balls, 80-20 balls. And that was kind of even the criticism of him about whether or not, there is a, uh, you know, does he get enough separation and whether or not that matters and everything. And we saw in week one, Drake London, five catches on seven targets, 74 yards. Not only is that pretty good production, you know, for a player, especially for a pro player making his NFL debut and one who uh, I believe it was a broken ankle took him out of everything, you know, for six months. And he comes out immediately and is pretty productive. And, uh, you know, I think over the course of the whole year, eventually I, I, I fell in love with uh, Jameson Williams, and now he's on the Lions. Uh, Brad Holmes made that pick, and Brad Holmes just doing a lot of things that I think I would do if I was the Lions GM. Um, and another guy who's, you know, was injured during the college season, which is ne neither here nor there, I guess, for now until the Rams, you know, next time they play the Lions, I guess. But um, for Drake London, that's going to be a matchup that a lot of people are talking about. Jalen Ramsey, how big of a deal, like we talked about Jalen Ramsey in the instant reaction podcast. If you're listening to this, you know, hit subscribe and, uh, or go over to the YouTube channel where we will do, be doing our instant reactions um, after every Rams game, including this Sunday against the Falcons. But Jalen Ramsey is going to be a point of focus. A lot of things these days in the cornerback position, it's just, so much about speed. Uh, do you think that there would be any loss of speed for Jalen Ramsey, you know, going into what is this, his seventh year in the league, sixth, seventh year in the league? Yeah, I mean, he's an elite athlete, and he seemed to maintain that over the course of his career. Really no major injuries. I know he maybe there was some injury controversy to get his way out of Jacksonville, but, you know, he miraculously healed whenever he got to Los Angeles. So, and since he's been here, he's been on the field for the most part, you know, between the he had a bit of a bout with COVID last year and had to miss a Cardinals game, I believe. But uh, he's been a steady presence. And, you know, as Chris Daniel mentioned in the postgame podcast earlier, you know, last week, he seems to match up better against these bigger receivers where he can be physical, you know, jam him at the line, kind of be more grabby. And that's what he's going to get this week in Drake London and Kyle Pitts. And the New Orleans Saints, the, who the Falcons played in week one, 
they have a pretty good corner in Marshawn Lattimore too. And Lattimore was matched up more against Pitts than London. So maybe that's uh, kind of in, you know, Pitts is really, he's going to play outside. He's not necessarily lining in line like a tight end. And so maybe that's the matchup we see with Ramsey or maybe London proved he's dangerous enough in week one that, you know, the Rams got to pay more attention to him and allocate more resources to stopping him. So we'll see what the Rams plan is. And uh, I think definitely this is Jalen Ramsey needs to have a bounce back game at the minimum. Two physical, bigger receivers uh, are a prime opportunity for him to do that. Speaking of, you know, sort of the Falcons passing attack, there's Marcus Mariota at quarterback. One of the interesting things outside of Drake London is, you know, the Falcons, they don't really have any name wide receivers. You mentioned Kyle Pitts and, you know, he's going to be as much of a number one receiver as Drake London. So obviously that's sort of where Arthur Smith and the Falcons are turning their attention is having these two hyper, you know, impressive talents, these receiving threats, similar to a, you know, George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk of the 49ers, which of course the Rams are going to see twice this year, but just having multiple top 10 receiving threats out of the draft. And yet Marcus Mariota, he was seven of seven throwing to Kaderil Hodge and uh, uh, Zacchaeus. Uh, And so those aren't names, you know, and those aren't, that's not going to be, that was one of the big things with Calvin Ridley being suspended for the year. And obviously Calvin Ridley, if he comes back next year to Atlanta, that'll be their, their top three threats or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, sort of Marcus Mariota spreading that ball around, having those other players on defense, the Troy Hills, um, the David Longs, we didn't see any Robert Rochelle on defense in week one. Um, how about the ability to defend those players? Yeah, and Marcus Mariota, when he, before he was replaced by Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee, you know, he was someone who got the Titans to 9-7 and seven pretty much every year. And, you know, the Titans wanted to get over that hump, and that's when they made the switch to Tannehill. And he never really looked back, and he ended up going to the Raiders and now the Falcons. But he's definitely a guy who can get the job done. He's not going to wow you or, you know, he's not going to make a lot of spectacular flash plays, but he's steady. He can make plays with his legs too. And something that gives me a bit of concern is, you know, you have to choose whether Ramsey covers Pitts or Ramsey covers London. That leaves one of those bigger targets for someone else. And the Rams cornerback group outside of Ramsey is pretty undersized. So, you know, David Long Jr. is on the shorter side, Troy Hill's on the shorter side. Um, Rochelle is a bigger person, you know, a bigger individual with a larger frame. Maybe the, this is prone for him to, you know, get some more playing time and match up against these guys, but um, it's going to be interesting. Kadero Hodge, Rams fans probably recognize that name from his time in LA. Uh, more, a bit of a limited athlete, but, you know, a consistent, reliable player. And he's going to make an impact on special teams. And then Zacchaeus, you know, smaller, shiftier slot type player, had a costly fumble against New Orleans. And honestly, that could have been the difference in the game. So, uh, he's really been at this is the most he's ever been asked of in his short career. So we'll see if, uh, you know, whenever you thrust people into positions where you have to rely on them, sometimes they aren't always ready for it. And that seemed to be the case for Zacchaeus in week one, at least. But they, outside of the top two receivers, they need someone to step up just so Mariota can kind of play point guard and spread the wealth and involve as many people as he can, because that's how you stress defenses in 2022. Let's talk a little bit about Mariota and 
some of these analytics, these advanced stats that came out of week one for the Atlanta Falcons and JB, tell me, you know, what they make you think of when in relations to, you know, Raheem Morris, the the plan on defense, being able to make sure that Marcus Mariota, who, you know, in my opinion, remains a bottom three starting quarterback. I don't think that there's anything controversial about that. You know, everybody is relative, right? So relatively speaking, Mariota coming into the league this year as a guy who was a backup the last two and a half years since, as you say, he, you know, he was replaced by Tannehill because of an injury, but at the same time, Tannehill won that job. You know, as soon as he took over, there was a difference in the offense and he wasn't going to lose that job. And then Mariota spent the last two years backing up Derek Carr on the Raiders and now he, you know, has found himself in a situation here ahead of, you know, Desmond Ritter, who we haven't talked about, but third round pick out of Cincinnati, not a guy that should be on the field this week. And yet, you know, Arthur Smith, a guy who I think is going to find himself on the hot seat at some point may just decide, hey, I'm going to go to Desmond Ritter just because it's time for us to start winning. You know, as you say, it's not a team to take lightly. And at the same time, relatively speaking, a lot of people don't think that the Falcons are going to come out of the NFC South this year, to say the least. But for Marcus Mariota in week one, and these are just week one stats in a vacuum, these things happen all the time where, you know, one week, some guys putting up number, you say, oh, this is so indicative of what's going to happen in the future. And then it's the exact opposite. But this is what we saw in week one. Marcus Mariota went 20 of 33 for 215 yards. He had 282 intended air yards. So those are all the passes from, you know, when it leaves his hand to when it uh, attempts to or does reach a receiver out there on the field. Sometimes air yards can be negative. Sometimes they can be, you know, positive. So he averaged eight and a half intended air yards per pass attempt, which was ninth in the league for week one. The most was Lamar Jackson at 12 intended air yards per attempt. And the lowest was Jalen Hurts at 4.1 intended air yards per attempt. So we can see that Arthur Smith, on average, had Marcus Mariota throwing the ball downfield a little bit more than the average quarterback. Completed air yards per completion were 6.9, which averaged, again, which ranked ninth. And then you look at accuracy. Eight of his 33 attempts were considered bad throws, which comes in at about 25%. And that was the fifth highest rate of bad throws in the league behind only Justin Fields, Dak Prescott, Trey Lance, and his former starter in front of him, Derek Carr, just ahead, just a little bit worse than Davis Mills and Jared Goff. So that was a little bit of his accuracy. And also on top of that, J.B., Marcus Mariota was pressured on 10.8% of his throws, and he was only blitzed three times. That's the third lowest pressure rate in the league. So the Saints didn't even blitz or try to put that much pressure on Mariota. They were hanging back, trying to cover those receivers or and saying, hey, try to beat us deep. We're going to let you have all these throws underneath, which is, I think, where these guys get seven of seven targets, you know, and it's like, we're going to let you have these underneath throws. We're not going to let you beat us deep. We're not going to let you get those explosive plays. And then finally, Mariota, he had 17 RPO plays, which was the second most in the league. 
Jalen Hurts had 18, and we saw how Jalen Hurts was the lowest intended air yards per attempt at four yards per attempt. Um, and 17 uh, RPO plays, it was 11 more than third place, Lamar Jackson. So there were really only two offenses in the entire, entire NFL, Nick Sirianni of the Eagles and Arthur Smith with the Falcons. Those are the only two guys, majority plays out of an RPO. So that's something to watch too, assuming that Corderell Patterson and Marcus Mariota, they're going to be trying to come at, out of those RPO sets, making the Rams guess, making Bobby Wagner guess. And Bobby Wagner, with his 10 years with the Seahawks, he saw pretty much the birth of RPO popularity, which happened around 2012 with RG3 in 2012 with Washington when he won Rookie of the Year with Russell Wilson with RPOs for the Seattle Seahawks, which helped the Seahawks win a Super Bowl. So something that Bobby Wagner is going to be familiar with. Going over all those stats, JB, what are your immediate thoughts in terms of the game plan here to expect from Marcus Mariota? Yeah, that pressure rate of 10% is extremely low, but really it could be a product of using those RPOs at a high frequency just because you get the ball out so fast. It really protects the offensive line. They're kind of run blocking. You know, it's not traditional, you know, pass blocking technique where they're dropping back. And, you know, the Saints have a, a formidable defense and they could have really gotten after him. So I think that's pretty interesting especially when you juxtapose that against Matthew Stafford, who is at like 38% in week one. And whenever you get into that 40 plus range, it's almost impossible for quarterbacks to be successful and string together, you know, any real production on offense. So Kyler Murray in that wild card game against the Rams, that Monday night game, he was, you know, pretty close to 50%. And, you know, you saw him just make the type of mistakes he doesn't normally make. He looked awful in that game and it's hard to complete passes. It's hard to, you know, make smart decisions with the ball and, you know, so that's whenever you put it in that frame of context, you know, maybe gives you some idea of what how difficult Matthew Stafford's job was on Thursday night. And, you know, Mariota's being managed. Maybe, you know, something that's held him back in his career is just being a hyper conservative quarterback. It's interesting that he, his yard intended yards per attempt were so high because, you know, the knock on him in Tennessee was just that, you know, he doesn't really put the ball uh, down the field much. And just because he he's he's a savvy quarterback. He doesn't put the ball in harm's way either. And you're not going to see him make just dumb mistakes that, and that lead to turnovers and interceptions. Really um, he's on the other end of the spectrum where everything's going to be underneath. It's going to be short. It's going to be quick. And he's not really going to put the ball in harm's way. So whenever you do that, you reduce uh, the margin of error for your team and uh, you, you steal possessions in a way. And that's the kind of teams Rams have struggled against on defense, these ball control you know, they're going to see, they're going to, it's going to get be hard for you to get a rhythm going on offense and maybe make Sean McVay's, you know, play calling a little bit more difficult. So uh, we saw that Tennessee Titans last year, the San Francisco 49ers, and, you know, Arthur Smith is going to try to come into this game with the same type of game plan, of course. Yeah. Going off of um, what you were saying about Matthew Stafford too, just to do some comparisons here and talk a little bit about how the Rams are going to attack the Falcons defense, of course, Matthew Stafford was 29 of 41 for 240 yards. I mentioned uh, intended air yards, as you said, Mariota, surprisingly going a little bit more deep than usual. Matthew Stafford, the opposite, going uh, being more conservative or Matt McVay in the offense and what the Bills were giving the Rams last Thursday night. 
causing him to have 5.8 intended air yards per pass attempt, which ranks 26th in the NFL, right around the same as Daniel Jones and Aaron Rodgers. Uh, in Rodgers, his week one loss, pretty easy loss to uh, Kevin O'Connell's Minnesota Vikings. Um, Matthew Stafford, he was on target. He had on-target throw percentage of 78%, so pretty accurate, ninth highest in the league Jameis Winston, who faced the Falcons, was eighth highest in the league. So Jameis Winston having some success hitting his targets, which is not always the case for Jameis Winston, but was against the Atlanta Falcons. And, you know, who knows how the Falcons pass rush will respond to this year. Arnold Evichetti, their second round pick uh, out of Penn State, pretty talented guy, had a sack in week one. But that was maybe the worst pass rush in the NFL last year so. With Joseph Noteboom maybe a little banged up, but starting, and then, of course, the shuffle on the offensive line, you know, will the Rams be able to keep the Falcons' pass rushers at bay? Stafford was pressured on 30.6% of his dropbacks last week, but notably was only blitzed a single time, according to these numbers, by the Buffalo Bills, which was the lowest in the league only uh, Trey Lance was sacked less often. And I, you know, Trey Lance is a special case of a quarterback, you know, it's a guy who's barely played quarterback. So, you know, Matthew Stafford's played as much quarterback almost as anybody in the league. And uh, there was no blitz, you know, with those safeties that the Bills got, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, they were comfortable, you know, letting um, their four, top four guys go after it. And, you know, he was pressured 15 times. So a pretty good success rate, I would say, given the low rate of blitzing by the Buffalo Bills. So the offensive line is going to have to do a better job against Ebiketti and Grady Jarrett, who, you know, is getting to face Coleman Shelton at center and Tremaine Ankrum at guard. You know, what are your thoughts there on that matchup? Definitely, I think it's fair to expect a rebound for Joseph Noteboom. But you know, I understand the Rams wanted to come to the Bills game with Joseph Noteboom taking on Von Miller one-on-one just because if he handles that matchup, it's such a big benefit for the offense and what you can do whenever, you know, Tyler Higby doesn't have to help or you don't have to have a running back help block, you know, Von Miller or one of the interior defensive players too. So uh, once, but once it was clear that they weren't going to be able to handle these guys one-on-one, I didn't really see a pivot from Sean McVay. You know, maybe screen passes, quick passes, design rollout for Matthew Stafford. It, it seemed like they just they stuck with the all or nothing approach and kept trying to push the ball down the field. So that's I love where this conversation has gone because I just wrote about this on Turf Show Times today. But Matthew Stafford, you said he was pressured 30 percent of the time. I have him at 38 percent of the time based on the PFF numbers from mm-hmm. Thursday night. But 37 percent of those pressures were converted into sacks. He was sacked seven times against the Bills. So. That's the fourth lowest or the first worst, fourth worst uh, mark of all quarterbacks in week one. And that was only behind Mac Jones, Derek Carr and Cooper Rush. So not exactly mobile type guys who can who can evade pressure and move around the pocket. You know, kind of more statue-esque people. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, Patrick Mahomes was pressured four, or 17 times, Justin Herbert 15 times. They didn't give up a single sack. So whenever you talk about the modern quarterback who can – you know, extend plays with their legs, push the ball down the field, or, you know, in Mahomes' case, who's really getting the ball out quick, similar to Josh Allen against the Rams. Uh, you know, you're going to get pressured, and you're going to want to extend plays and push the ball down the field, but how you navigate that pressure and, 
you know, how you make quick decisions and get the ball out of your hands is, you know, it's indicative of how successful you're going to be. I think Matthew Stafford objectively struggled with that against the Bills, and we'll see how he handles that against the Falcons this week. I don't think the Falcons are a team that's really going to pressure you at a high rate, but I want to see pivots from Sean McVay. I want to see the intention of Matthew Stafford, if he's under pressure frequently, to get the ball out quick or, you know, consciously dink and dunk. It's not a bad thing if you're under pressure and that's all that you can get up against opposing defense. I would have loved to see that from a Thursday night. So uh, 38% of the time that your pressure gets converted to sacks, that's an awful mark. And, you know, sacks are a quarterback-driven stat. Pressure is an offensive line-driven stat. And that's really a big area that Matthew Stafford has to prove over the course of the season. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and this is, indicative of just like how where to really rate the importance of pressures and everything the only the player who had the highest rate of pressures the highest rate of blitzes the highest rate of hurries by far was Patrick Mahomes you know he was the most pressured quarterback in the league in week one he was pressured on almost every drop back and he dominated uh the Cardinals almost every throw. So, you know, and that's the talent of Patrick Mahomes. I don't know where PFF got their grades this week, but they should probably turn them back in. Um, This was, uh, but that brings up some interesting points, you know, JB, I think it's, it's important to emphasize what I believe, which is like also what I've just read from other people who are smarter than me, but uh, you know, quarterback sacks taken, it's a risk assessment. It's a risk assessment for every every quarterback. It all takes place. This is, you know, I've just like most people, I grew up thinking, oh, if you get sacked, that's the offensive line's fault. You know, it just makes sense. There's offensive linemen, there's defensive linemen. They're going into war on every single play. It's underrated as perhaps the most exciting matchup of every game. And there's five happening at any given time. And it's those matchups between an offensive 300 pounder and a defensive 300 pounder that are making, you know, this is like sort of the quintessential example of football, two beefy men wrestling each other, trying to beat the other, you know, and Aaron Donald as a former wrestler being such a clear example of, how you win because of technique instead of size. And it's like those plays are happening over and over and over again. And sort of just like a a baseball hitter who hits 300 and is successful because, you know, even though he's wrong 70% of the time, a defensive lineman isn't good if he, you know, he doesn't has to, he doesn't have to win every battle. You know, the offensive lineman has the advantages and then it's up to the quarterback to assess all those advantages to assess that situation and then decide how soon do I have to get rid of this football? How, when am I going to get rid of this football? Am I, am I aware of the pressure around me? Am I aware of where to go in the pocket? You know, there's a lot of things that Jared Goff doesn't do well, but one of the things he does better than most quarterbacks is assess his risk and step up into the pocket. He's not a mobile guy, but he doesn't get sacked very often. If he got sacked, one more time per game than he has over his career, he would be a much worse quarterback. He survives by having those, that sort of awareness of the players around him. And, you know, you can be a really athletic guy like Kyler Murray or Lamar Jackson or Russell Wilson. Those guys get sacked more than most quarterbacks by far. Russell Wilson's the most sacked quarterback and he can blame his offensive line all he wants. And he can talk about this or that, and he can escape sacks sometimes, 
but then he doesn't escape a lot of sacks and neither does Lamar Jackson. You know, it's, it's this unfortunate double-edged sword that says, if you're really athletic, if you're really scrambling, if you're that guy, well, now you've turned off the part of your brain that says, throw the ball away, step up into the pocket. Do not try and escape the pocket. Do not try to run for 15 yards. Just, you know, see if you have a screen pass, a dump off, some other option other than taking a sack. And so when I see a quarterback get sacked seven times, that's a bad night for the quarterback. The quarterback has to take responsibility knowing, you know, oh, I'm not going to have very much time to throw the ball. I'm going to have to figure out a plan to get rid of this. I'm going to have to be mobile inside of the pocket. So where would you rate Matthew Stafford's risk assessment in week one? Did you feel like he was really not aware after a certain point, like, hey, Joseph Noteboom's not going to win that battle very often. Do you think that he was doing a good job of uh, that kind of, and Sean McVay as well, was were they, set up, were they set up for success once it became obvious they were losing those battles? No, and I went back and watched the game against the Bills, and maybe it's because I know I had the context of watching the game the first time and understanding what kind of pressure Stafford was under, but I just was so frustrated at how there was no plan to handle the pressure. And, you know, Stafford, you know, whenever you look at Josh Allen, he, he knew where he was going with the football. He got the ball out so quick in less than two and a half seconds. And, you know, Stafford, if you compare it to the time to, the time to throw from last year, it was really about the same, you know, statistically significantly the same. So uh, it seemed like they were just trying to push the ball down the field. The Bills were only rushing for dropping the rest into coverage. There wasn't really avenues to push the ball down the field. And he was just sitting there watching receivers get covered down the field. And, you know, I, there was nowhere to go with the football. It, and it, it, they were like banging their head against the wall. And maybe that's, you know, you put some of that blame on Sean McVay. You put some of that blame on Matthew Stafford. And the offensive line deserves their fair share of the blame. David Edwards, Joseph Noboom didn't necessarily play well either. So it, I think it's a, a three-way, you know, of blame that goes and each deserve a certain portion of that. But you got to get creative at some point. And you just got to stop looking for the same thing and expecting different results. And that's what happened on Thursday night. And we'll see how the Rams pivot moving forward. You know, uh, I know over the years of doing this, I know what sort of statements fans really start to loathe and uh, hate hearing from writers. But at the end of the day, uh, which is kind of one of those cliches, but at the end of the day, um, the Rams are all in one. And, you know, people are going to say, you can't go 0-2. The last defending Super Bowl champion, as I wrote on uh, Turp Show Times uh, today as well, uh, the last defending Super Bowl champions to start 0-2 were the 1999 Denver Broncos. So it hasn't happened in a while. And Blaine Grissack over at Turp Show Times wrote uh, whether or not the Falcons game is a must-win game. And there's no question that teams have started 0-2 and won the Super Bowl. There's no doubt that I think the Rams, if they start 0-2, I really don't think that they will have that much of an issue getting back into a playoff positioning by November. I mean, like not even, it may not even take that long. I, I just don't think that it's really that big of a deal. But on the same token, I can't say that starting 0-2 is a good look for a team that uh, A, you know, had all these expectations and then went out, made a few changes this year. And, uh, you know, there's going to be questions about whether or not those were the right changes to make. And then uh, B, 
got blown out in week one and was maybe the worst team as I, as I wrote as well, debuted in last place for DVOA. So you don't want to get blown out in week one and then lose to Marcus Mariota's Falcons in week two. If you're the Los Angeles Rams, you know, you got to have respect going into week three. So is this a must win game for the Rams? Not in terms of standings. I don't believe it's a must win, but for morale, for momentum heading into the season, I definitely think it is. And maybe those things really aren't different, but to me they are. And whenever you think about the next six games, which are really against five different teams, they're all winless. And this is a massive opportunity for the Rams to go 6-0 and for the next six weeks, be 6-1, and and you know reassert themselves as a top team in the NFC Conference. You know, you play the Mariota Falcons here in week two. Then you got Arizona, who looked putrid against the Chiefs. They didn't stand a chance. Who blitzes Patrick Mahomes? And they did it at an alarming rate. And, you know, Vance Joseph, I have never really been a big fan of him as defensive coordinator. But then you play the, the 49ers in week four. You know, who knows what Trey Lance will be at that point. At least you play him, you know, again in week seven, I believe. And, you know, you see him twice early in the year. He's probably a different player in week 18. So that's a positive, a silver lining for the Rams. And week five, you have the Dallas Cowboys. You're probably playing Cooper Rush instead of Dak Prescott. And in week six, you have Baker Mayfield and the Panthers. So this is a massive opportunity for the Rams to turn things around, recapture momentum, and reassert themselves as a top team in the NFC. It's right here at their fingertips. They just got to – it sounds easier said than done, but they just got to do it. Yeah, any um, other sort of observations that you had? What are your thoughts on, you know, this start by the San Francisco 49ers? They didn't have George Kittle in week one, but then they lost Elijah Mitchell for uh, a while. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, they didn't have Elijah Mitchell last year after he got hurt. And, uh, you know, you, to what degree don't you think that a, a Shanahan offense They'll get something out of Jeff Wilson or Trey Sermon or Tyrion Davis Price or whoever it is. Or, you know, I can't even really keep track of which running backs are on their roster at any given time. Um, but that game against the Bears that they lost, it was, uh, you know, Trey Lance flashed some of those very exciting plays. And at the same time, it's not just the risk he takes on those runs, which I find to be way too brutal for a quarterback. This is not a Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson type of run. This is an RG3 type of run. And I think that is a formula for disaster. Um, but he also just had some of the worst throws I just have ever seen. And the, the conditions were bad. But for a guy that's only taken 700 pass attempts since high school, it's not that surprising. You know, it's a little surprising that he's out there. So what were your takes on the uh, 49ers? You know, the caveat that the weather was bad is fair. I think pretty much everyone's making that point. But at what, uh, how much credit do you really give him for playing in that game? And how much do you judge him? So uh, really the first test is going to come here in week two for Trey Lance. So um, he missed some wide open touchdowns. It's interesting. I think maybe a point for Trey Lance and Kyle Shanahan can also be made for Matthew Stafford and Sean McVay is this is a quarterback driven league. It's such a hard job to play quarterback. And, you know, whether it's third and longs or, you know, even third and shorts, you know, we ask a lot of quarterbacks to roll out and make plays and they're really the difference between winning and losing most weeks. So if the game goes through them and the outcome is determined by their performance, why not make their job as easy as possible? And they're always going to have these moments where the weight's on their shoulders and they have to make something happen, but, you know, give them breaks during the game, make, make, give them opportunities to make plays that are so easy. They can just turn their brain off for a little bit. And I think, you know, the 49ers really asked too much out of Trey Lance 
And the Rams really asked too much out of Matthew Stafford in week one. Uh, you know, just Matthew Stafford with a straight drop back. Uh, where was the, where was, you know, rolling him out, only giving him, letting him read half the field at a time. So I don't think Justin Fields really outplayed Trey Lance in week one. I don't think that's fair to say, but definitely if they're going to be a Super Bowl contender and not revert back to Jimmy Garoppolo as a starter, what he showed against the Bears just flat out isn't good enough. And it's concerning at the minimum, but I don't really want to pile on just because I think it's too small of a sample size. There's the weather and uh, we've got to see more from him moving forward. Well, yeah, I agree that, um, you know, I think that Trey Lance and I would, I think Justin Fields had a little bit better of a situation, I guess. And there were some lucky plays and, you know, ultimately I watched that game and came away very clear that, Trey Lance deserves to lose, or the 49ers deserve to lose, let's say that. But in, 10 times out of 10, I would draft Trey Lance over Justin Fields right now. Like the, the, the talent difference, that ability to do certain things, to me it wasn't even that close. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, Justin Fields outplayed him either, and I do think, you know, it's a situation where both teams seem to be putting quarterbacks in positions that are going to be difficult or a high degree of difficulty for not having that NFL experience because they just at this time, you know, are, are the, do they have the most amount of help around them to be successful? And uh, it's kind of a difficult, certainly a difficult situation playing in those conditions uh, this week the 49ers take on the Seahawks. So very different situation. The Seahawks coming off of a 17-16 win over the Broncos. We don't really know at this point if the Broncos are good, bad, or average, and probably average, I would say. And for the Seahawks, I would still probably say they're below average. But do you think uh, that that's a big game if you're the Rams to think that perhaps the uh, 49ers would have an 0-2 start would you have any sort of pause about the 40 or the Seahawks having a two and O start? I feel like it would be better just to have the 49ers start out. Oh, and two. A hundred percent agree with you. And if you're the 49ers and you're just in the NFC championship game a year ago, and you're looking at Owen two at Trey Lance, the veterans in the locker room, this is a team ready to win. Now, how do they, you know, not start thinking, is this time to bring back Jimmy Garoppolo now that he's back as a backup on a one-year deal? So I think it's recipe for disaster. They got to win sooner than later in order to stave off that circumstance. And the other NFC West team was the uh, Arizona Cardinals. And I, the game wasn't, you know, you had a setup here of Kyler Murray and uh, Patrick Mahomes and uh, Cliff Kingsbury and how many points would these teams score? And it turned out only one of them was uh, up for the task of scoring points. Um, and that was the Kansas city chiefs. So the Arizona Cardinals looked no match for them, and they haven't looked like a good team since they lost to Andre Hopkins. I mean, he was there for the 7-0 start. Everything was going great. He gets hurt. The Cardinals fall apart. He's suspended for six games, so he's not here now. They just can't play good football, it seems like, without DeAndre Hopkins. Are you seeing anything? Because uh, – the Rams, they uh, will get the Cardinals in week three. I, I mean, to me, it's like almost deja vu. The Cardinals are bad. What do you think? Yeah, no DeAndre Hopkins for the six, first six weeks, like you said. Christian Kirk left for free agency. 
and the Jacksonville Jaguars. He had a huge week one. And then Rondell Moore, you know, he hurt his hamstring. He's out. The Cardinals' leading receiver, it wasn't Marquise Hollywood-Brown. It was Greg Dortch, who the Rams signed as uh, – he was on the Rams' back end of their team in 2019. They cut the guy, so – and now he's the number one wide receiver. I'm not the biggest fan of Hollywood-Brown. Uh, he really is a inefficient-type target. He's going to make his plays down the field, and I think he only had four catches in the first game. And, you know, who's Kyler Murray throwing the ball to? That's a pretty big concern, and – Hopefully they get Rondell Moore back soon. They can be competitive, but I mean, it's really hard to judge them off that performance against the Chiefs and the Chiefs don't necessarily have a great defense, but they made life hard and life difficult for Kyler Murray, uh, at least at first. Yeah, I mean, it's just hard not to think that the Cardinals have been run by, you know, uh, the Bidwells so this entire time. They can keep on bringing in new GMs and coaches, but when you go around, making you know some of the craziest moves it just seems like yeah uh, you know aj green uh, nobody else is really still buying that aj green is a number one receiver it's trading a first round pick for hollywood brown without a new contract you know it's not quite you know working out the decisions to you know i was a little shocked about the decision to extend kyler murray with this amount of time left on his contract when he hadn't really played well last year until after the seven and zero start, you know, and uh, it, it seems like they just continue to do Cardinal like things uh, uh, down to, you know, the decision to hire Cliff Kingsbury, but at the same time, it's a, it's an 11 and six team a year ago and Deandre Hopkins will be back in week seven. So the Cardinals, you know, that's another one, you know, this, if this isn't a must win game, if the Rams are one and one, well, you don't want to be one and two after the Cardinals game with the loss of the Cardinals. And you definitely don't want to go into the Cardinals game. zero and two. So that's another reason to think don't slip up against the Falcons to go into the Cardinals game at zero and two. It doesn't matter if the Cardinal might be worse if the Cardinals are zero and two, because then the Cardinals have a must win game and it'll be all that pressure early on in the season there for for both of those teams um but the good news jb is we're talking about football again real games and uh really doing it anything uh anybody that you'd like to see this week um that we didn't really see uh in week one obviously there were the famous no-shows like cam Akers and tutu atwell and Allen Robinson, you know, there were there were a lot of uh, curious decisions or lack of decisions and, and Sean McVay just reiterating after the game that, you know, well, we just didn't have the opportunities for those players because of game situations. We didn't expect to be in these game situations, and I'm sure they didn't expect to lose by 21 points. But out of all of the players who didn't really show up in week one, who do you would do? Who would you like to see show up in week two? Yeah, and I think it's easy to dismiss Sean McVay's point that game situations really, you know, dealt them a bad hand just because you have such a low percentage of snaps and it's hard to rotate guys in for those snaps. But between the running back room, you don't have Kyron Williams. You know, Cam Akers is pretty much absent. We, I don't want to see Daryl Henderson in a lead back role. He really should be a complimentary back. But do you really have confidence in Cam Akers? for him to take over as a number one type bell cow. I mean, I don't think so. Jake Funk certainly can't carry that type of role with the team. So I don't know what the Rams are going to do. I think they really need to look at external options at running back. 
maybe it's too late to do that. Maybe there's no one else on the street or practice squad to do. I know the 49ers signed Marlon Mack today. Wouldn't have mind having him in the building, but I think that's kind of unfortunate. But yeah, Allen Robinson, I really don't know what to make of that. I don't know what the Rams plan on offense was heading into the Thursday night game. Maybe they're trying to push the ball down the field and they found seven guys in coverage and there really was no way to, to meaning to do that in a meaningful way, but uh, you got to get him involved. You sign him to, he's getting paid almost as much as Cooper cut, you know, maybe four or $5 million a year less, but that's still top receiver money, or at least it was before this year. And uh, when someone's that important to your team and it's supposed to play a complimentary role, you got to take the pressure off Cooper cup and um, mm-hmm. Matthew Stafford has to get him involved. Absolutely. You know, um, it's not, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like sort of like the must-win game. It's like you don't want to put pressure on things to happen right away. But if you string together two or three games early in the year with Allen Robinson not getting any production, then all of a sudden it's not just other people going, what's going on with this high-profile signing? It's Allen Robinson going like, hey, I just came here for this to be uh, OBJ or Robert Woods, what's going on? So, and I wouldn't really worry about that. I'm sure that though, I don't doubt that those opportunities are coming, but as you say, the running back situation and and the comments of uh, from McVay and, and understanding why, I mean, why does, you know, that whole idea of like uh, Cam Akers taking advantage of opportunities, like if you don't play in the preseason, then we were all assuming he was looking really good in practices and training camp because we have no way of knowing, I guess. And without having those reps for us, now that's just me saying that selfishly, it's up to Sean McVay to, to not play cam Akers, And that might be the right, that probably is the right decision in the preseason for running backs, but it's just those things where it's like, Oh, this is surprising because we thought that that was the number one guy and you're barely even making him sound like the number two guy. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where he comes into play because the running game in 2020 didn't really take off until Cam Akers was back there. And then obviously he never uh, did anything of note really in the playoffs last year for various reasons. And, you know, he hadn't played in in so long. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that changes against the Falcons. And it'll be interesting to see how all things change in week two. That's the beauty of football every week is different and we've had one in the books and the next one could change our perspectives dramatically. And uh, you know, for the Rams, I think it'll be important to come out of uh, this game with a double digit win, you know, just something that emphasizes, Hey, we, uh, we did win the Super Bowl. We, we actually are really good. And uh, we know this is how we should play at home against a team like the Falcons, the bills. Hey, they're a much different team right now and the Falcons are in their process of uh, getting the pieces in place so time for teams like the Rams to take advantage and show who they are you know JB we never really do predictions but I feel like doing one I'll give you the opportunity to do one if you want to I guess for me my prediction would be going into this game that the Rams they do have certain matchups and advantages, and uh, I think they need to take advantage of those. I think they need to be pre- prepared for the Falcons. I think they need to know exactly what defensive coordinator Dean Pease is going to bring because he is such a veteran defensive coordinator. So go out there and show them that with Cooper Cup and Allen Robinson and Matthew Stafford, you are going to beat them with talent. So I'm going to say 30. 
35, because I think you do got to score 30 points in this league if you're a good team. I'm going to go 35 to, you know, 20. I think it should be a pretty considerable victory for the Rams. Do you want to give a prediction? Yeah, sure. And I think something maybe an underreported topic for this week is that this game features the two top cornerbacks in terms of PFF grades from last season. You got Jalen Ramsey, who's number one, and A.J. Terrell's number two. So Terrell, a very good coverage player, struggles in run, especially relative to Ramsey. So I think he's going to take away Cooper Cup. I think it's going to be a big week for Allen Robinson. And, you know, maybe Ben Skronik, you see Tutu Atwell mixed in. Uh, Skronik had a lot more volume last week, but, you know, Tutu Atwell dropped his lone uh, target. So I think, you know, this is a big week for the two through four, maybe five receivers on the depth chart. And I think the Rams come away with the 27-24. 27-24 sounds exciting. And uh, let's see how that does play out. We'll be back after the game for the Instant Reaction Show. That's going to be Rams-Falcons this Sunday, September 18th at 1.05 Pacific time. So I'll talk to you again in, uh, right around 5 o'clock this Sunday. Subscribe to Turf Show Times on your podcast apps. And we will talk to you then.